Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. Jesus calls Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Well, between now and Thanksgiving, we're going to be doing a new little series that um, I've entitled Dining with Jesus. We're going to be looking at different passages and different stories, different vignettes of what happened when Jesus ate with people. What were the conversations he had? Whom did he eat with? What were the settings? What were the outcomes? Looking at dining with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word, May your spirit be with us. May we be open to receive what you want us to receive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I thought it was fun to take a look and realizing just how often Jesus dined with people. Jesus came into a town and was invited to dinner. Jesus was out in the countryside and he, well, made dinner. How at times Jesus was at a celebration and they ran out of wine and he had to come up with something to to help it out. Dining with Jesus. How often do we have our lives revolve around not just food? I don't want to make it merely about the food, but you know there's a difference between, oh, that quick meal that you just heat up quickly and shovel in so that you have your fuel for the next few hours versus that meal where you set it out and you have stages and phases and courses where you have, uh, you're not only involved with what we're eating, but where we're eating it and why we're eating it. It's a facilitation of conversation. It's a facilitation of welcome and love. Or maybe it's an opportunity to build trust or to land a deal. So many different situations come around the table. That's why I thought we should look at that for the few weeks. Who does he eat with? What are the dinner table conversations? This week we will look and see Jesus eat with a newly invited disciple, Levi or Matthew. But before we dive into this passage, I'd like to set it up so that we have a little bit of context. You see, Matthew, Levi, he was a tax collector. And, and Jesus was a, a new um, and unique rabbi. He was seen as a teacher. He was seen as someone who came through maybe unorthodox means, but was still someone who was of God, by, seen by many. And why was Jesus eating with Levi? Why did Jesus call Levi to walk with him and into his inner circle? These are the questions that I'd like us to set up. And so before we dive into the passage, I'd like to set it up by saying, think of the world in which we live today. I have a, I've had a slightly new obsession for the past few months. Um, I almost daily watch YouTube updates from the Ukraine front lines. I don't know why, but I've just been fascinated and prayerful and just 
kind of watching this counteroffensive, trying to see, will the Ukrainian people liberate the lands from uh, an occupying force? You see, that relates well to Israel under Roman, Empire, under Roman rule, doesn't it? It helps put us into a context. But you see, it, one of the things that I've learned when I watch these videos, one, I recognize that I'm seeing mostly from a Ukrainian perspective. So there's a bias. There's a home teamerism going on there. But I also noticed something else that I don't hold dear. You see, I don't blame the sources that I'm watching for being celebratory of their victories, but I'm a little unnerved by the ease with which they dismiss the loss of their enemy. It's so clean when I say it that way, the loss of their enemy. It's one thing if they lose a tank or two. It's another thing if they have a plane that no longer works, or if they lose a territory and have to retreat and fall back. But at what cost? It always, I find it unnerving when in these videos someone celebrates and just callously, coldly, dismissively acknowledges that some men have died. I remember as a child when I first realized that in, I was raised in the Cold War era, when I first realized that Russians had children and loved them too, came from a, a song by the, the, the singer of the band The Police from Sting. And it still sticks with me to this day to remember that in this conflict, although one is an oppressing force, one is an occupying force, one started something that did not need to start. There is a right and wrong probably in this mess. Those that are sent to the front lines usually did not start it, nor claim to. They're just there. It bothers me that there's a callousness towards the reality of loss of another. Now we also have another um, event that has consumed the airways, consumed our uh, news channels, our papers, our magazines, our online sources, our news feeds. Clearly the Israeli-Palestine news has been... Um, probably on our hearts if we have any sense of global awareness. And to be clear, what ought to be done is beyond all of our uh, scope of our knowledge bases. And I know it's easy to want to ha take a side or have an opinion, but to be honest, the opinion about what ought to be done or how it ought to be done, none of us are in a place to have such an opinion, or at least maybe one that ought to be shared. But what we can all probably agree on and need to agree on is that we see suffering. We see the horrific sights that were done in great acts of evil last Sunday. And yet, we also now witness the atrocities of war on both sides, on all sides. And we hear too often the voices that dehumanize the other, justifying their inhumane treatment. You see, if we can dehumanize someone, if we can call someone an animal, we can then treat them like an animal. Well, what if they behave like an animal? Well, <laughs> we are all well aware that human beings do not live up to our glorious, our glorious uh, right of being image bearers of God all that often, do we? We are aware that we do not live up to the call of who we are in Christ Jesus or who we are even outside of Christ Jesus, but the bearers of God's image. Yet, does that absolve us from treating one another as image bearers of the mark of God? No. 
If anything, it calls us to overcome and, and, and look through, look under, look over, look beyond the sins of the people and see their humanity that needs to be there and needs to be rekindled and to be, be, be stoked to flourish again. We cannot fall in to the hatred, to the dehumanizing language. We cannot fall into both sidesism to justify heinous acts of evil. Or as we've heard before, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. We don't, and let's also be honest, we don't have to go halfway around the world to see how people dehumanize other people, do we? Right here in this country, right here in our very states, and we have several states represented as we live kind of right in this nice little hub of multiple states, but we don't have to go far, do we, to see how urban people look down on rural people, or rural people or suburban people look down on, on urban. We don't have to look too far to see how if you believe something different or belong to a different political party, you are no longer a fully human being and you can have all sorts of evil things said about you. Depending on what class you're in or where you came from or what your level of education is, it's so easy to feel superior to another. And the amazing thing is you can be on any end of that spectrum of education or class and feel superior to the other because our minds are so clever at justifying our position against the one we do not feel connected to, to the one we do not see our humanity in. And then when we get to that point, we can dehumanize them. We call them snobs or animals or barbarians. We can make fun of people and dismiss them because of their accent, because of the region of the country that they come from or the class or culture of people that they, that they learn to speak from. <laughs> we can even get literal hatred over the sports teams that we follow. I love a good trash talk about sports. I think it's fun. I recognize that a friend of mine this week was not quite ready for a text thread. He's from the South, and he's an Atlanta Braves fan. And I reached out to him, asked him if he was all right. He didn't take me as sincere, because I wasn't. And I recognize that when game four came along and, and, and Atlanta's wonderful season came to a, a, a beautiful end. Um, he wasn't ready to respond back and initiate the threat again. So I've let, it, I've let it lie for a while. I'll give him a week. But see, that's fun. That's friends. That's good nature. But have you seen the people who actually barbarically fight with one another? If you follow soccer around the globe, the literal fights that we have over sports teams, over politics, over we are so good at dehumanizing other people who are not in our tribe. And that brings us back to today's dinner party. You see, the party isn't the problem. Having a dinner party is wonderful. Even the Pharisees could enjoy a good party, as long as you tithe 10% of it. But what they didn't like was the guest list. Jesus was dining at the home of a tax collector and his friends. Now, just a quick reminder, the tax collector, it's because of our familiarity with it, it's easy for us to have a kind of a a kind of a warm feeling towards the tax collector because we know Levi comes to Jesus and becomes a disciple and an apostle. We, we know that Zacchaeus, he, he 
confesses Christ and he gives back all that he's stolen and he paid back his biblical rights four times the amount that anything that he ever took. It's wonderful. But in, in this situation, the Roman Empire liked to outsource its tax collection. It didn't want to get messed up into it, but what it did set was, here's what your area owes us. So they hired contractors from the local people, from the local area, and they said, bring us this amount. And beyond that, they did not care how it was gotten. They only cared that it was gotten. So now you see, it's not just that there's a Roman occupation. There's a Roman tax. There's a tax all the way over in Palestine that's going to go all the way back to Rome to support things in Rome that these people are never going to benefit from. It's the fact that it was locals, their own people, turned against them. And if you think about it from the perspective of the religious Jewish person, they were longing for a day to be released from the oppression and captivity of Rome. And they were longing for a day when God would reinstall them and reinstate them. When, so, so the idea of this betrayal of a fellow Jewish person, a fellow Hebrew, that you would not only betray your people, but you would betray your God. What, a, what a, an offense that is. So can we put ourselves and give the Pharisees a little, bit of a, a little bit of slack? When you see them eating together, why would a religious leader eat with a traitor to God? Why would a religious leader eat with the people who are bringing God's judgment down upon us? Why would you celebrate them? Why would you give them any sense of ease or peace? That is the situation that is happening here. And moreover, Jesus called one of them to join him. Earlier in that day, he said, come and follow me. And hearing that news, Levi, Matthew, was so excited, he gathered his friends. In verse 29, it said, then Levi held a great banquet, which must have been good, because I mean, he probably had a little bit of extra money. He could probably afford the good wine. Levi had a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you see the difference? Others changed to sinners. Hmm. Eating with someone meant something. Eating with someone... um, the, the, the Old Testament laws set up dietary codes and the culture. There was a, a specific set of written rules of who you eat with and what you eat. But there's also unwritten rules that made it even clearer who you do and do not associate with. Now, of course, we would know nothing about that today, right? Imagine if we selected an equivalent, a traitor, a God denier, Uh, one who blasphemed God but also betrayed his people. Imagine if we invited someone like that to join our vision team that we're forming. Imagine if, if we invited an outsider like that to serve on session as an elder in the church. How do you think that would go over? Hopefully you all would say, um, session, can we have a word? We have, we have a couple questions. But this is what Jesus did when he invited Matthew to to join him. 
This is what it did when he, when he ate with him, when he broke down those barriers and he ate with, he, with other tax collectors and others. Both were written and unwritten social codes revolving around who was an other and who was a sinner. Who is, who is clean and who is unclean? Who is pure? Who is impure? Who is in and who is out? Who is the human and who is the sub less than human? Who is the animal? Who is the barbarian? Who is the heathen? Who is the, I'm going to get kind of like my grandmother here, who is the riffraff? Who is us and who is them? Who is worthy and who is worthless? Now, just to be clear, this does not mean that all groups and all parties are on equally moral footing. Not all who are welcome into Jesus' community are coming from an equally moral or righteous path. But you see, the difference is that the Pharisees only offered judgment. They did not offer opportunity. Jesus said, come and follow me. What does that mean to follow Jesus? Walk with him. Serve with him. Do what he does. See what he sees. Learn how Jesus sees people. Learn how Jesus sees his neighbor. Learn how Jesus actually noticed this widow over here in the corner that normally we walk right on by. Look how Jesus sees when he enters into a city and there's a, a funeral procession coming out. And there's a widow who has no husband and no sons and no one to care for her. Look how Jesus sees when, when he finds someone who, well, has lived a very impure life, who then crashes the party and pours, pours oils, expensive oils, out on his feet and his head and praises him. See, come follow Jesus is to say not just a conversion moment. It's not the flip of a light switch. It's not just a now I'm in, now I'm out. It's a new path, a new journey. It's a decision to walk a new way and learn a new life and to see the foretaste and the first fruits of the kingdom of God that is promised to come. It's to learn a new way of dealing with others. It's to learn a new way with dealing with conflict. It's to learn another way of dealing with the sinners and the others and those that are on the outside. And here, an outsider was invited to the inside to learn a new way, a new path. Jesus offered welcome. Jesus offered acceptance and belonging. He offered a path for transformation. Let us look back at these global issues we talked about before. Can you imagine a day in the near future when a peace treaty is resolved and everything's just fine again between Russians and Ukrainians? It's going to be hard, isn't it? Even if a treaty is drawn and a line is set, there will not be trust between neighbors, will there? Not without a miracle of Jesus. We know that all these issues and problems that are happening in Israel and Palestine, and I think Azerbaijan and uh, Armenia, that's another war that's about to happen. These neighbors have been fighting for centuries. These neighbors actually are brothers and sisters from the same families, just different sides of a tribe or different sides of a religious divide. 
or different side of a post-colonial line drawn in the sand in the 1900s. It's amazing how deeply these offenses go. And without the transforming offer of come follow me from Jesus, we are doomed to repeat dehumanizing, dehumanizing, dehumanizing violence. Ukrainians and Russians, Jews and Palestinians, blacks and whites, so much hatred, so much rage. What are we to do? Now, not in this text is one thing I'm going to offer that we should do. Looking at these insurmountable issues around us that, I mean, again, looking globally, we can look at these massive stories that consume our airwaves, but we don't have to look far because we can look in our own cities, our own regions, our own areas. Sometimes we can even look in our own families of who we don't even talk to. I had a diner that I used to go to, small country store in Clifton, Ohio. It was great because they had uh, this, this husband and wife, they just ran this little thing. He was an excavator, but she ran the diner, and it was a little community hub. And then there were the Spracklin brothers. The Spracklin brothers were in their 60s, they were farmers, and apparently, as legend had been told, they hadn't spoken a word to each other in over 25 years. I saw them both dining in this diner all the time. As a matter of fact, the little farmhouse that I rented, one of the Spracklin brothers farmed that area. They traveled in and around the same circles and spent 25 years not talking to each other. I asked, I, I'm, I'm that guy. I eventually kind of snooped around, like, why? Literally nobody knew. On a cursory level, it's kind of funny. But when you actually think about the reality of it, how heartbreaking is that? Then nobody even knows the offense. But whatever it was, brother lost brother in the same community. You see, we don't have to look too far to find such division, such animosity, such hatred. So I'm reminded of what N.T. Wright wrote back when COVID started. He was pressed by several different sources to give a word on what was happening. What, what's God's perspective of why is this pandemic coming? So when we look at these issues of deep pain, deep suffering, almost like mind-boggling cataclysmic events, and we want to know why, what, what, what's going on here? Sometimes we want to be the rationalists who we need an answer to understand why what's happening. And other times we're the romantics uh, that just want to feel a sense of relief and feel good feelings through it. So N.T. Wright wrote this. The rationalists, including Christian rationalists, want explanations, romanticists. They want to be given a sigh of relief. But perhaps what we need more than either is to recover the biblical tradition of lament. You see, lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. It's where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and failings and look more broadly at the suffering of the world. So friends, as we look at these issues that are far bigger than we can solve, when you take a look at an issue that's so large that you almost feel powerless to participate in its solution, when you feel overwhelmed and throw your hands up and say, it is what it is, it's the way it's always been. What can we do? 
Too often we're tempted in these moments of overwhelming tragedy. We, we turn to choose a side. We choose one Spracklin brother over the other without even knowing why, because we just know them more or like them more. We choose to calling one side the other or a sinner. In this, we oversimplify complex issues. In this, we make judgments without actual knowledge. Why do we do this? I think one of the reasons is we want to release ourselves from the tension of not knowing what to do. We want to release ourselves from the tension and our actual helplessness, so we just choose a side, dehumanize the other, and we can go off thinking we have order in the world because we know who's good and we know who's bad. And then we start absolving and looking the other way on the bad that the good are doing, and we highlight every bad that the, and we ignore the good that the, the bad are doing. Is that productive? Is that a cycle that's going to end in anywhere good or release? No, but it just makes us feel good in the moment, doesn't it? So instead, what now? What can we do? I suggest that we resist these urges. I, I suggest that we re resist oversimplifying. I suggest that we resist making quick and definitive judgments on areas that we actually don't have the right information or expertise to make a judgment. I suggest we resist labeling them as sinners. Instead, when we find situations that are deep and difficult and painful, where there is suffering and seemingly hopelessness, don't look for an answer or don't look for a good feeling. Sit in that moment and let us lament. Go to the Psalms and learn how to lament. Go to the scriptures and learn how to cry out to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? And let that question linger. Lament the pains. Lament the injustice. Lament instead of justifying. Well, it's not that bad. Well, it, it, you know, there was some good that came out of it. Let us just sit and lament. And then let us learn from this text. Invite the other to dinner. How about that? How about that, those that we consider the other, if it's a political party, if it's a, if it's a sports team, I guess invite them over for the big game? I mean, if it's going to come to blows, don't invite them over for that one. That would be a little weird. But it, whoever is your other, whoever is your sinner, whoever is your them, not us, invite them out to dinner. Pick up the tab and celebrate your humanity with one another over food and drink and conversation. Tell jokes, tell stories, listen, hear their life. And then what, do you, what happens when you have dinner with somebody? You see a spark of humanity in them. You see a light of love that they have for their children. I always marveled when I watched The Godfather how I would see these great evil masterminds of crime and how protective and loving they are of their families. Doesn't that seem like a disconnect? Even the worst people who do the worst things have a child they love. And that's something we can celebrate. That's something we can agree on. And when we find that kernel, we can grow something and we can hope for some transformation.
So I suggest to us when we come into this world and we're feeling angry and we want to have a label to make us feel released, resist that. Let us lament, cry out to God, God, this is not the way it ought to be. And God, is there anyone from that group I can invite to dinner? Would you pray with me? Father, it's easy to say these things. It's a lot harder to live them. But Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity that we might look at our own hearts, look at our own minds, look at our own lives. Help us to see who we, who we treat like the Pharisees treated Levi and his friends. Help us to see who we can stop judging and ask and pray for their blessing. Help us to see who's an enemy that we can love and pray for and invite to dinner. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.